It's wonderful to see our little ones go back to uh, rooms where people are going to love them well and they will hear the gospel and the good news of a Savior who came to defeat death. And many of us, even if we were a little bit frantic, realizing that we forgot to set our alarms and had to move a little bit flustered, we're here gathered in this beautiful space on this brisk morn with the rising sun shining through the stained glass. But in singing that, it made me mindful of uh, half a world away there are two and a half million people who have fled their country and two million more who are expected to follow. And we are just two and a half weeks into the Russian invasion of Ukraine and already we're sickened afresh with war. Uh, cities surrounded, hospitals shelled, thermal barrack and cluster bombs dropped. And for some, you're seeing war for the first time. Others, we've seen this again. Some of y'all have seen it firsthand. But there's no sane person that isn't sickened by war and doesn't long for the day when it will end, along with the injustice and the corruption and the greed that prompts it. Uh, one of the more powerful presentations of this desire for the end of war and the injustice and corruption that caused it uh, was a Simon and Garfunkel song called The Seven O'Clock News. And it begins with the sweet singing of Silent Night. And as the duo sings of a silent night and a child tender and mild and peace on earth, there's an interruption of an actual segment from a seven o'clock news from 1966. And the newscaster talks about racism and Martin Luther King having a march in a neighborhood. And it talks about the overdose of the comedian Lenny Bruce and his death the mass murder targeting nursing students. In Chicago, protesters on Washington for a war in Vietnam, and Richard Nixon warning that unless there is a substantial increase in the war effort, the U.S. should look forward to five more years of war. And the silent Garfunkel close with sleep in heavenly peace, sleep in heavenly peace. The newscaster reads, that's the seven o'clock edition of the news. Good night. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> Good grief. And, and that's still the litany of not just the seven o'clock news. Whenever you turn it on, we're bombarded with a world at war that sickens us. We just want to be relieved of. And yet we don't seem to be able to overcome it because of the sickness within us that corrupts us and makes us greedy and unjust. And whether at an individual society or a national level, we're in conflict and we long for peace. And God is going to send His Son to establish peace someday. And that's the theme of our text today. We are in the book of Micah, a minor prophet in the Old Testament, writing during the time of Isaiah, who is going to, in chapters 3 through 5, call us once again to a warning of God's judgment on sin, but then also the hope of the peace that He Himself will establish someday. We're actually going to cover this cycle in two weeks. Uh, we'll do the first part of Judgment and Hope today. And then we'll turn to the way that God is going to accomplish that hope through a babe born in Bethlehem next week. Micah 3, 1 to 4, 8 is going to bring us first on an indictment of the secular leaders, the religious leaders, the judgment that they brought on their country. But then God's hope for not just the Jews, but the Gentiles and the peace that all of us long for. It says, and I said, here now. This is the second of the verbs here 
It's this call that uh, are the seams of the three major sections of Micah's seven chapters. So three times God's prophet is going to call people to attend to what he has to say to them. And he says, Hear now, Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, those that are leading the southern and northern kingdoms, those who are over God's people, be they kings or judges or public officials or administrators or clan chieftains, anyone trusted with the power and responsibility and authority to make decisions and render judgments that affect others. And the primary requirement of them is that they know justice. Uh, We've seen the recent political placards of leadership that listens and a mayor that wants Denton to be not just great or not just bigger, but greater, but better. But the primary slogan, the primary requirement, the prerequisite of someone entrusted with authority is that they know justice, that they know what God requires, that what each person ought to be meted out and they do so fairly and blindly and without partiality anyone based on their wealth, based on their race, based on their gender, based on their age. When you go to the courthouses, Lady Justice is blindfolded because she's not supposed to be able to see who's in front of her. Not their socioeconomic status, not their education level, not anything about them, so that when she puts the case based on the facts in her scales and then she meets out justice with her sword, it's done equally, fairly, justly. That was the requirement that God gave Israel even before he sent them into the promised land. He said in Deuteronomy 16, when you enter the promised land, you shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe. Justice and only justice you shall pursue that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Justice was a prerequisite, a requirement for staying and remaining in the land because God is a just God. He is a righteous God who requires justice and righteousness among his people. A generation earlier, he said in the book of Leviticus, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. God doesn't allow those in authority to defer to the rich and the powerful because they can grant them something in return, nor does it allow judicial activism on behalf of the poor if it's unjust. God requires justice, that each person be given what they deserve according to God's law without any corruption, bribe, or intimidation. But in contrast, look how Judah's people were treating them. You who hate good and love evil. God required justice and righteousness, but they abhorred justice. They loved evil. And listen to the gruesome description that God gives of them. Who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones. Who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, break their bones and chop them as up as for the pot and as meat for the kettle. God says you are cannibals that I put you over my people, that you might use your authority to be able to help them and benefit them. And instead, and he gives this vivid depiction of tearing flesh and rending bones and dropping the remnants in a kettle for stew, because that's what it's like when people exploit their authority for personal gain. And those in authority that are to take care of and benefit those underneath their charge, instead use it and exploit them and harm them and do injustice to them for their own benefit and gain. And God says, you are as engrossed as mice and cannibals. 
And as a result, that even though they cry out to the Lord, when judgment comes, He's not going to answer them. There's going to be poetic justice. You were deaf to the cries for justice from those that were underneath you, and I will be deaf to your cries. You remember in Luke 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? And there was Lazarus who was leaning on the doorstep and pleading for help, for relief, for some kind of mercy. And the rich man was deaf to his pleadings. And so later when he himself was receiving a just judgment, God was deaf to his pleadings. So God gives this indictment on any given, any kind of secular authority if they abuse that authority in any way to benefit themselves and exploit those underneath them. And then he moves to the religious leaders. Thus the Lord says concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, those who are to seek God's will, be able to convey God's revelation, to lead people on the straight path, the highway of holiness, instead have perverted that. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. Now this word bite, the Hebrew word, is used 11 times in the Old Testament. And in every other occurrence but here, it's used of a serpent's bite. These are venomous, vicious vipers who are striking out at those who came to them to seek God's will. And God condemns them. Anybody who would claim to be a spokesman for God and determine their message based on the donation they receive. That if you give me enough, I'll promise you peace, prosperity, health, and wealth. But if you seem a little bit stingy with a pocketbook, I will rail God's thunder upon you until you give up the money that I demand. In the time of Martin Luther, there was a man named Johann Tetzel who was a Dominican preacher of indulgences. And so the Pope wanted to build a new place that you can visit today in Rome known as the Vatican. But to raise money, he endorsed an indulgence sale so that people could give donations and that would be able to either buy forgiveness for future sins. So if you knew you were headed to Galveston for spring break and wanted to go guilt-free, you could pay for forgiveness in advance in order to get off whatever sins you committed. Or you could get your loved ones out of purgatory. And so Johann Tetzel went out preaching the sale of indulgence and saying, if you want forgiveness of sins, just write a big enough check. And if you have loved ones, and he would go, we have uh, quotes from his sermons of saying, can't you hear your mother who bore you, your father who labored so hard to raise you? Now they're in the agony of purgatory's flames and you for a pittance can release them. Are you so hearted, you callous child, that you won't for a copper free a loved one who gave their body and soul for you? And even had this marketing jingle that went with it. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And there's still people who would fleece God's sheep for money. And God has terrible things in plan for them. Likewise, those who are going to uh, be supposedly seeing God's visions, poetically, they will be without vision. Darkness will fall upon them. The sun will go down on the prophets. The days will become dark over them. And because they have no word from the Lord, the seers will be ashamed and the diviners will be embarrassed. Indeed, they will cover their mouths because there's no answer from God. Those who claim to speak for God, but who do so to benefit themselves, God will silence them. God will close their eyes. God will not give them a word until embarrassed and ashamed, they have nothing left to say. And in contrast, we see what a true prophet of God looks like. Micah says of himself in verse eight, on the other hand, I am filled with power. 
because he's filled with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and with courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel, his sin. That a true prophet of God speaks all the truth of God, even when it's unpopular to those who really don't care to hear from God. Because there have always been those who would rather bribe good news out of God's preachers or to threaten or intimidate them with cancellation or worse if they refuse to keep their mouth shut at sins that everyone in society wants to commit. But there's always been those who have remained true and stalwart to speak God's word regardless because this is what a prophet of God, an ambassador of Christ, is required to do. And Elijah is going to denounce Israel's sins even if Ahab and Jezebel threatened him. And we're going to see John the Baptist rise up against Herod and his adultery, his incest, even if Herod is eventually going to behead him. And Jesus is going to be uncowed no matter how many religious theaters try to trap him and try to cow him into intimidation. And so Paul and so Polycarp and so Luther and so in our modern days, people like John Piper, who we, when he was invited in South, to a conference in South Africa on suffering, and he had the audacity to speak on hell. And that was not what they wanted on the docket at this particular assembly. And John Piper says, God does care about all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. And that's why he sent his son to suffer and to die for us. And he was uncouth. And so those who are going to be God's spokesman, whether a preacher from this pulpit or y'all who represent him in your workplaces and communities, we have to teach all of God's word, even when it's unpopular. Because one, that's what requires, God requires of us, but also that's what true love looks like. A physician who can't give bad news is no physician. An educator who won't correct their students is no educator. An accountant or a lawyer who won't advise their clients against tax fraud and cheating on their taxes isn't giving good legal or financial counsel. Giving the truth means giving all the truth. And that's what God requires. But now he goes on to indict and give the judgment of the wicked leadership of Israel. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. In the name of building up the city, in the name of doing good, they did violence and injustice. And people have often done that. In the French Revolution, the Jacobins, as soon as they got power, anyone who wasn't radical enough for them or anybody that they felt opposed their agenda, they put on a blind date with Lady Guillotine. And they just shut them down. Uh, during the Soviet Revolution, when people protested the collectivization, the starvation of millions, the putting into the gulags of those who protest, the recurring refrain was, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. But humans aren't eggs. And the communist omelet proved to be inedible. But there's always been those who, in the name of justice, are willing to commit injustice. Uh, last summer, we had racial riots across the country in the name of social justice. But God decries it. And behind much of it, we find out in verse 11, her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe, her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Bribe, price, money. What's behind much of that? It's greed, it's gain, it's corruption. It's my benefiting myself under a noble slogan at the expense of those that I should be serving. 
And in the midst of all this, they lean on the Lord saying, is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. So they were in Jerusalem. The temple was in Jerusalem. They assumed God's presence was among them. As long as we have God here, surely he's not going to bring judgment on his own capital, on his own country, on his own temple. And sometimes we kid ourselves that God would never do to America what he did to Rome or fill in the blank all the other civilizations. God would never do to Texas. God would never do to. And the reality is, there is no sacred rabbit's foot that protects us from the holy God if we choose to defy him and be stubborn in our sin and rebellion. There is no rabbit foot against them. And instead, look what God says in verse 12. Therefore, on account of you, you religious leaders, secular leaders, you committing corrupt injustice, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. So in Micah chapter 1, Micah predicted the Assyrian invasion that was going to come up to the very gates of Jerusalem. But then God delivered Hezekiah and the angels slew 180,000 Assyrians. Go read 2 Kings. It's an amazing tale. And God delivered Jerusalem. And as the flood abated, what did the people do? Now we can get on to sinning. And haven't we all done that? that sometimes we get frightened by a potential judgment and we say, God, if you'll just spare me this, I'll never. Or God, if you'll just deliver me out of this, I'll always. And God delivers and God spares. And what do we do? Whew. Now I can get back, get back to sinning. But the next time, the next wave, when the Babylonians come, they're going to not stop at the gates, but they're going to knock down the gates. They're going to knock down the city. They're going to destroy the temple. It's going to be reduced to rubble. And now this massive fortified complex and religious center is going to be a field for farming. It's going to be a demolished heap of ruins. These mighty blocks built one upon another. And it's going to reduce the remnant of worshipers to going to the forest because the trees are going to be growing up where the altar used to stand. God judges sin. And none of us are above judgment, except those who have allowed Jesus to bear our judgment on our behalf. But even then, a good father disciplines his children because he's a good father. And the, the picture here is so stark. And the picture here is so strong of imagine the fortified walls of Jerusalem. And there is the mighty city, conquered by David, built by David, extended by Solomon. And now it's a smoking rubble. It's a smoking remnant with the people taken into captivity because they would not listen to the warning of God and continue to defy the Holy One of Israel. And no one is above judgment when we do that. And just kind of a brief side note, because there's an interesting biblical trivia, it's in this context of Micah's refusal to be silent, even though his message was unpopular, that is later going to save the life of the prophet Jeremiah. And Micah is the only prophet explicitly mentioned by another prophet and quoted by another prophetic book. So in Jeremiah 26, God says to Jeremiah, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I have commanded you to speak to them do not omit a word. Perhaps they'll listen and everyone will turn his, from his evil way that I may repent of the calamity which I am planning to do to them because of the evil of their deeds. And you will say to them, thus says the Lord, 
If you will not listen to me to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I am sending again to you again and again, I will make this house like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. God says, Jerusalem, if you don't repent, I'm going to judge you, just like I did Shiloh, a former holy side of God. And the people, the priests, the prophets rose up and said, kill Jeremiah, slay this man, because he dare say that God would destroy his own temple and his own city. But then some other people say, no death sentence for this man, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And some of the elders of the land, some of the older folk, rose up and spoke to all the assembled people saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. And he spoke to all the people of Judah saying, Thus the Lord of hosts has said, Zion will be plowed as a field and Jerusalem will become ruins and the mountain of the house as a high place of the forest. And did Hezekiah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and beg God's favor and the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he pronounced against him? And they spared Jeremiah's life. Micah's boldness, Micah's courage, Micah's integrity, Micah's commitment to speak God's word saved the life of Jeremiah someday even though it didn't lead the people to repent and the city ended up falling. But in the midst of this, and again, we have to have in our mind, Jerusalem, the footstool of God's throne, the center of the earth, the navel of the world, the place of God's temple, reduced to rubble and ruin and trees growing up. And now look though at the drastic change that God is going to give them in the very next verse. Look at 4.1. It will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the people will stream to it. Micah envisions a day in the darkness of God's judgment when the hope is going to be given that Mount Zion is going to be lifted up as the most precious place on earth because this is where God is going to rebuild a restored temple with renewed king. And not just the Jews, not just the remnant of the faithful Israel and Judah, but the Gentiles, the pagan nations are going to stream up it. Now normally streams don't flow uphill, but the magnetic attraction of God is going to have redeemed souls flowing to it. And all these nations of the pagans are gonna come not as a renewed invasion, but on pilgrimage to seek the person of God. Many nations will come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. The word's gonna get out to the world that God is in Zion and he is speaking truth and he is revealing the right way and people are going to flow to God to attend to his word not to shut it up, not to quench it, not to quell it, not to temper it, but to obey it, to apply it, to abide by it. And for, from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. There is coming a day when God is going to restore the very place he judged and it is going to become the center of God on earth and the redeemed nations are gonna to flow to it, bringing tribute, eager to seek and worship. If you want a picture of this, go open your Bibles to Revelation 21 and 22 because at the end of God's terrible judgment comes his glorious hope that God himself is going to redeem and restore what he himself righteously judged and destroyed. 
And now look at the beautiful picture of peace that awaits us. Verse 3. He will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. There's going to be a judgment day. There's going to be a reckoning. And all the corruptions are going to be corrected. And everything wrong is going to be righted. And therefore, in the aftermath of the judgment of God, they themselves will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The weapons of war are going to become implements of agriculture. And we can imagine the day when tanks become tractors and when missile silos become grain storage or places for people to scuba dive and artillery shells become opportunities to sow more seed because there's never going to be a need for those terrible implements ever again. They're all going to be done away with forever and ever in the perfect peace that is coming. And not only that, but nation will not lift up sword against nation. There's never going to be a lifted sword, a thrown spear, a shot arrow, a dropped bomb, a fired missile. All harm is going to end in the glorious peace that God himself will establish someday. To the point that never again will they train for war. The martial arts, the military skills, the military academies will all be defunct and anachronistic. Because we won't, know, we won't have to know how to attack and how to defend. Now, there's a famous letter that John Adams, the second president, wrote to his wife Abigail. That he says, I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. So in the revolutionary time, he thought, I have to study war, but I hope do so in the hopes that my sons won't have to. But three and a half centuries later, what are we doing? <laughs> We're still mastering the art of killing people and of slaying people. But there's going to come a day when, when you open your Webster's Dictionary in heaven, there's not going to be any entry for casualty. There's not going to be any entry for atrocity. Uh, artillery, cavalcade, all of these words that now are part of our vocabulary are going to be never spoken again in heaven because there's no need for them any longer. It's what we all want. It's what we all aspire to. And it's what God is going to establish someday. And not only on this national level is there going to be peace, but there's going to be personal prosperity for every individual. Look at verse 4. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree. So the vine and the fig tree, the grapevine and the figs, were the two primary fruits that might have been in an Israeli backyard. This would have been the thing that you would have enjoyed if you had a home garden. Uh, in North Texas, we might say everyone will sit underneath their pecan tree and their blackberry bush, thornless in heaven. <laughs> because everybody is going to have prosperity, beauty, abundance, and the peace to enjoy it. Notice their posture. They're sitting because you don't have to stand guard. You don't have to be vigilant. You don't have to fight off either the black-headed crows that come down to get your little ones or the things that will infest the crops or your neighbors who might steal it if they see your abundance. There will be no one to make them afraid. Can you even imagine for a moment the utter absence of fear? No fear of a neighboring country invading. No anxiety over eminent domain. <laughs> no. 
no stress over how much of this is going to be taxed <laughs> and moving you into another bracket. No stress, no fear, no panic, no alarm, no anxiety ever again for anyone. Because no one, nowhere, at no time will ever threaten harm ever again. Doesn't that sound lovely? <laughs> it's what God is coming to bring when he sends his son. Uh, in the music Hamilton, there's a scene where Alexander Hamilton goes into George Washington and George Washington says, uh, Thomas Jefferson is resigned. He's going to run. And Hamilton says, no problem. You're going to crush him. And Washington says, I'm not going to run for a third term. And then he gives his political and his personal reasons for doing so. And in the song, one more time, it says, if I say goodbye, the nation learns to move on. It outlives me when I'm gone. If I can step down from power, I'm going to set a precedent and example for other rulers to do the same. But then, personally, like the scripture, Micah 4, 4 says, everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. They'll be safe in the nation we've made, which didn't happen. But he says, I want to sit under my own vine and fig tree. A moment in the shade. But what's coming for us isn't a moment, but forever and forever. An eternity of unbroken, unthreatened, never to be removed, peace, prosperity, thriving, flourishing, joy, contentment, when God establishes peace on earth and goodwill with the men who give themselves to himself through Jesus Christ. And as a result, they say, we know this because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. God himself, who is faithful and true, has declared this is going to happen. And that's why my hope isn't in the economy or the stock market. It's not in what Supreme Court justices get appointed or removed. It's not in any given election. It's not in any worldly outcome. It's not in any educational improvement. We've tried again and again to establish utopias on earth, and we haven't and we won't. But God will. He most certainly will, because he promises that he will. And that's where our hope is. And therefore, as a result, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. We will be faithful then and we aspire to be faithful now. That there is only one true God and we commit ourselves to him now that we might know him and enjoy him later forever and ever. And in that day, God says in verse 6, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcast, even those whom I have afflicted. Those who have been lame by injustice or by God's judgment. Those who have been cast out of Israel because they were expelled from the land because of their continued stubborn disobedience. God himself is going to regather them. He himself is going to heal them and restore them. He will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. The perfect peace of God will last as long as the perfect reign of God, which will be endless, uninterrupted, eternal. So if you live during the days of Solomon in Israel, you could look back to the glory days when there was peace and when there was prosperity, but then there was idolatry, then there was judgment, then there was civil war, then there was division, then there was expulsion, and it didn't last. Uh, in the days of England, if you believe Arthur was an historical, historical figure, you would long for the days of Camelot, when it wasn't right makes white, right, right, might, what is it? 
Might makes right, it's right for, might for right. That was really awkward, that was terribly phrased. But you get the point. People would look back to the days when Arthur was in Camelot before Ivanhoe and Guinevere and Civil War and a fall. But in the peace that we will enjoy someday, it will never end because God himself will reign on earth forever and forever and forever. And Jerusalem, God now speaks to them first person. As for you, tower of the flock, a high place that the shepherds would have built to overlook the sheep and make sure that none strayed and all were safe. Hill of the daughter of Zion, that word hill is the Hebrew word ophel, which is a reference to the southeast ridge in Jerusalem in between the temple and what's known as David's city. The kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. To this Jerusalem, to this city, to this place will come the former dominion, the Davidic reign, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem, that God is going to send a descendant of David as Messiah, as king, to reign in Jerusalem, to establish peace, and to reign in righteousness forever and forever and forever. And that's our hope. That's our hope. Um, if you go to New York City, at the intersection of 46th and 1st uh, on the East River is the UN, the United Nations. This organization formed to try to establish peace and prosperity. And if you go into the garden there in the UN, there's a famous statue of a man with a massive hammer, hammering a sword into a plowshare. And underneath it is the statement that they shall hammer their swords into plowshares. And what's ironic about the statue is it was donated by the Soviet Union in 1959, right at the time that Fidel Castro was taking over Cuba and missiles were soon to be imported right on the eve of the Cuban Missile Crisis. I don't think it was a Trojan horse, but it's an ironic symbol of the most aggressive nation of the age donated a statue promising peace all the while working to undermine it across the globe. If you exit the UN Visitor Center and go two blocks south, you come to a park on which there is a large granite wall known as the Isaiah Wall because on it is inscribed Isaiah 2.2, which is a direct quotation of Micah 4.3. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn anymore. And this wall, with the exact same quotation, aspiration, dream, desire, mission, was built at the same time as the United Nations being built in 1948, three years after World War II, which was 30 years after World War I that was supposed to be the world, the war to end all wars, but it wasn't. Also in 1948, Gandhi was assassinated and the Soviet blockade of Berlin and the Berlin airlift began. Even in attempting to write these aspirations and ideals of peace, they're ironic, they're tragic because they haven't worked out. They won't work out because we are sinful and corrupt and God's got to deal with us before he can bring the peace on earth. One of my favorite movies is called The Lion in Winter. It won the Academy Award in 1968. It has Catherine Hepburn as Eleanor of Aquitaine and her husband, I think it's, is it Peter O'Toole? Who's over, I see some nods, thank you, got it right. Um, 
who's King Henry II, and they meet in northern France at Chinon in Christmas because they are fighting as a family to see which of the three sons is going to be given the reign after Henry dies. And they're all plotting and the scheming and attacking and it's ugly and it's sordid and it's terrible. And then Queen Eleanor is with her three boys and she says, Oh, my piglets, we are the origins of war. Not history's forces, nor the times, nor justice, nor the lack of it, nor causes, nor religions, nor ideas, nor kinds of government, nor any other thing. We are the killers. We breed wars. We carry it like syphilis inside. Dead bodies rot in field and stream because the living ones are rotten. For the love of God, can't we love one another just a little? That's how peace begins. We have so much to love each other for. We have such possibilities, my children. We could change the world. And her desire is right, but her premise is wrong. We're not going to change the world, at least not completely, utterly, perfectly. We haven't, we won't, we can't. But God can and will. And so we put our hope in Christ and the coming King who will come and restore and renew. And the old heavens and the old earth will be burnt up and they will be replaced by new heavens and a new earth. And those who have repented of their sins and given themselves to Jesus Christ will rise in immortal bodies and glorified flesh to re reside in perfect peace and prosperity in the very presence of God who is love forever and forever and forever. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then be encouraged in this hope. <laughs> This is where our hope lies, and it is certain, and it is true, and it is coming. Until then, let us walk humbly. Let us do justice. Let us love mercy. Let us live according to the faith that we profess. Let's share it with others, because there is a despairing world, because the world is darkening. And the one hope, the one antidote, the one cure to sin and death and war is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we tell them of a good God who is just and righteous and therefore he judges sin. And so don't sin. But he so loved this wicked world that he sent his one and perfect son to live the perfect life that we could never live, to die the death that we deserve so that the judgment of God would fall on him and not us and that we will rise someday and live with him forever and ever. If anyone here does not know that, does not believe that, has not embraced that, then would you talk to one of us today about how you too can have this hope and avoid that judgment. Would you join me in prayer? Father, it is so discouraging to turn on the news. And whether it's the Denton Record Chronicle, the Dallas Morning News, uh, the Wall Street Journal, or looking at the BBC broadcast of what's happening in Europe and around the globe, there is daily discouragement because we are sinful and corrupt. And therefore we corrupt this world with injustice and greed and violence and war. So we pray personally that you would help us to walk more faithfully with you, that you would deal with our own greed, our own corruption, our own selfishness, our own iniquities, our own injustices. Let us represent you well that we may serve you well. But Father, for our hope, let it rest in Christ alone, in his return, in his reign, and of the perfect peace and prosperity that will be ours someday. May we trust in that, rely on that, share that good news with others, and may it come quickly.
come quickly, Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name, amen.